morning. Well, for the final time, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 today. You can find that on page 950 of the chair Bibles, but the words will also be on the screen for your reference. I'd like to begin by reading this passage of scripture, beginning in verse 1. Please follow along as I read out loud. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the saints in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I don't know if you were counting, but there are 26 names listed in this passage. This may make you wonder why I would do a Thanksgiving sermon one which also happens to be my last one here at this church on a list of 26 names? Why is a passage like this even in the Bible? What can we learn from this seemingly obscure ancient text? We cannot answer these questions until we expose and overturn a common American misconception one which all of us, at one time or another, have been tempted to believe. It's the myth of the so-called self-made person. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, The Story of Success, clears up the confusion when he writes, quote, What is the question we always ask about the successful? We want to know what they're like what kind of personalities they have, or how intelligent they are, 
or what special talents they might have been born with. And we assume that it is those personal qualities that explain how that individual reached the top. In the autobiographies published every year by the billionaire slash celebrity, the storyline is always the same. Our hero is born in modest circumstances and by virtue of his own grit and talent fights his way to greatness. Lift up your heads, Robert Winthrop told the crowd many years ago at the unveiling of a statue of Benjamin Franklin. And look at the image of a man who rose from nothing, who owed nothing to parentage or patronage, but who lived to stand before kings and died to leave a name which the world will never forget. But, Gladwell says, these kinds of personal explanations of success don't work. People don't rise from nothing. We do owe something to parentage and patronage. The people who stand before kings may look like they did it all by themselves, but in fact, they're invariably the beneficiaries of the support of other people. End of quote. So what about the Apostle Paul? Was he any different? Or was he a special case. There's no doubt that Paul was an exceptional individual, a true outlier if ever there was one. He was an intellectual giant, a towering theologian, a brilliant writer, a successful missionary, and a chosen apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as brilliant Gifted and talented as he was, Paul was by no means a self-made man. Of course, fundamentally, he was the product of God's gracious initiative. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he wrote, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But Paul was also the beneficiary of the people he was surrounded by. His success in the ministry was dependent upon the efforts of others, the people who, who partnered with him in ministry, the opportunities that people gave to him, the friends who came alongside of him and supported him. He was not successful all on his own. He needed God's people, and we do too. That's what Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, is all about. Although we live on an island, none of us, to use the words of John Donne, is an island in and of ourselves. Each of us is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. We are interconnected and interdependent upon the people of God. And this Thanksgiving season we should especially be aware of this reality. God's people have invested in us, helped us, ministered to us, and supported us in countless ways. We would not be who we are today without the influence of other people. As I come to the end of my time here, I also realize how I have benefited from all of you. 
any success in the ministry I may have had here is directly attributable to your encouragement and support of my family and me. I am not an island. I'm just a small piece of the continent known as Hillside Church. But I'm thankful to the Lord for the people here who have made me successful. This morning, we're going to discover three answers to the question, how can we live more consciously aware of our need for other Christians? In each case, the Apostle Paul will serve as an example for us to follow. First, we must appreciate God's people. We must appreciate God's people. In other words, we must value their contribution to our success in life and in ministry. It is obvious when you read a text like Romans 16 that the Apostle Paul loved people. He uses the word beloved four times in this passage. In verse 5, he greets Eponidas, my beloved. In verse 8, he greets Ampliatus, whom he calls my beloved in the Lord. In verse 9, he sends greetings to Stachys, my beloved. And in verse 12, he greets Persis, the beloved. Paul had a great love for other believers. He loved them because God loved them. He loved them because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved them because the Holy Spirit had poured out his love for them in their hearts. And he not only expressed his love for the saints in words, but he also demonstrated it in his actions towards them as well. To give you just one example of the measure of Paul's love for others, Consider the immense time and effort it took producing a letter like the book of Romans. Romans is perhaps the greatest of Paul's New Testament letters. Some have called it his magnum opus. And it is also his longest letter with 7,114 words. The time it would take to compose a letter of this size is staggering to the modern imagination. For one thing, the writing material available in the first century was cumbersome and expensive. There really were two options for paper. One option was parchment, which was basically a leather strip of dried calf, goat, or sheep hide. The the dried skin was smoothed and thinned out and then whitened with rubbing chalk. Then it was trimmed into sheets of paper. The other option was papyrus. One scholar explains, Papyrus reeds grew in abundance along the banks of the Nile River. Reeds grow 5 to 15 feet tall. The reed is about as thick as a man's wrist. To make papyrus paper, the reeds were cut into sections. The strips were then pressed and beaten. The dried sheet was then smoothed in a manner as parchment and polished with a shell. Paul most likely wrote his letters on papyrus. Considering the length of the book of Romans, it would have required multiple sheets of papyrus paper, which also was not cheap. 
it has been estimated that the cost of Romans would have been equivalent to about $2,200 in modern U.S. currency. So this was no small undertaking. Obtaining the paper would have been costly, and writing on a brittle sheet of dried reed would have been tedious. Another complicating factor would have been the primitive writing instrument used. This was before the days of fountain pens, even before the days of quill pens. Most likely, Paul would have used a small reed cut about nine inches long with a point on the end. The ink he used was probably made from a mixture of gelatin, gum, beeswax, and ground charcoal. You can imagine how difficult it would be to write out a letter using these materials. In the case of Romans, Paul made use of a secretary or scribe to compose this letter. You can see this, for example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 22, where a man named Tertius identifies himself as the one who wrote out this letter. Paul dictated each and every carefully selected word to Tertius, who wrote down what he said. Who knows what other difficulties they may have encountered drafting up this letter. Perhaps there was no good writing surface in the room. Maybe there was inadequate light. Taking all of the complexities together, it is estimated that it would have taken over 11 hours to write out the Epistle of Romans. And that is just for the first draft. You see, this letter was a true labor of love. We can imagine Paul and Tertius poring over this letter hour after hour, from morning until night. Finally, they come to the end of the letter. But before adding the final benediction in verses 25 through 27 and allowing Tertius to rest, Paul has one more task for him. And so he calls out name after name after name on this list. 26 names altogether. And each one requires a great deal of time and effort. Greet Asyncritus, Hermes, Petrobus, Philologus. You can just hear Tertius. Greet who? Philologus. How do you spell that? And yet, every name was important. This is because Paul appreciated and loved God's people. He did not take them for granted. He knew that they were absolutely critical to his success as a minister of the gospel. What about you? Do you appreciate the people of God? Do you love them because God loves them? Do you realize their instrumental role in your life and ministry? Each of us needs to take some time this Thanksgiving season and think about all of the ways that we have been blessed by other Christians. The first way 
that we can live more consciously aware of our need for God's people is to appreciate them. We must value their contribution to our success in life and in ministry. Second, we must acknowledge God's people. We must acknowledge God's people. In other words, we must verbalize our gratitude for them individually and specifically. Paul took the time to acknowledge people individually. He refers to individual people on this list. And he mentions them by name. In so doing, Paul was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who, as the good shepherd, said that he calls his own sheep by name. He could have just given a generic shout-out to the church as a group and saved a lot of paper, time, effort, and money in the process. But he chose not to do this. He wanted the individual saints residing in Rome to know of his love for them. We also are called to acknowledge other believers individually. In 3 John, verse 14, John ends his letter with these words. Greet the friends by name. This is how we are to interact with one another. Obviously, in order to do this, we must take the time to get to know each other. This requires that we introduce ourselves to new people and those we've never met before. It requires that we make a concentrated effort to memorize each other's names. It definitely helps that we have name tags in the back available for our regular attenders. This was a big help to me when I first came here getting to know all of your names. But, but sometimes I wonder if the name tags we use hamper our ability to remember each other's names. What would happen if we took the name tags away one Sunday? Would we still remember each other's names? What about that person you met only once and have not talked to in a couple of months? Would you remember their name? Would they remember yours? I'm certainly not going to act like I have a flawless recall of everyone's name here, but it's worth thinking about. Do we value God's people enough as individuals to expend time and effort in remembering their name? Perhaps we need to follow blog writer Tim Challey's advice and declare a name amnesty Sunday. He explains, you've had the experience I know you have. You've seen new people at church and meant to meet them, but never got around to it. Now they've been attending for three or four months, and you know it will be just plain awkward to march up to them to introduce yourself. After all, what kind of a church member, or a church leader even, waits that long before making introductions? Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you met them the week they first visited, you spent a few minutes chatting and getting to know them, then walked away and realized, I've already forgotten their names. Now you're in that cringe-worthy spot where you nod or wave or say hello every Sunday 
while hoping they don't figure out that you've forgotten who they are. What can you do? You can declare a name Amnesty Sunday. An announcement early in the service explains it. This is a name Amnesty Sunday. This means you are free to ask anyone their name without shame or embarrassment. If you don't know someone's name, even though you should, or if you've forgotten their name, even though they told it to you, you are absolved from all blame and all awkwardness. If someone doesn't know your name, you are not allowed to hold it against them. You must grant them amnesty. Now go, he says, and find someone whose name you don't know and introduce yourself. End of quote. It would be great if every Sunday was Name Amnesty Sunday. So let us make an intentional effort to remember the names of people we meet so that we can acknowledge them individually. This is what Paul did as a tangible demonstration of that he loved people. Paul also took the time to acknowledge people specifically. His words of affection were not just generic, but they were specific. Notice how specific he gets in Romans 16. In verse 1, he commends a woman named Phoebe for her service to the church. He identifies her as a deaconess of the church of Sincrea. And he also commends her for being a helper of many. By the way, it's possible that Phoebe was actually the one who carried Paul's letter from him to the saints in Rome. In this way, she proved to be a helper to Paul as well, as he says at the end of verse 2. This is just another piece of evidence that Paul depended upon God's people for his success in the ministry. In verse 3, he specifically greets Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila. We met this couple last week in Acts 18. If you were not here, go back and listen to Pastor Jim's sermon on this dear couple, and you will learn more about their history. Paul expresses gratitude for them in verse 4 because they had risked their own necks for his life. But we're not told the details about this, it is clear that Paul owed them his very life. There would have been no Apostle Paul, no letter to the Romans, if it were not for the intervention of Priscilla and Aquila. Paul's life and ministry depended upon the help of others. In verse 5, Paul greets Eponidas, who was one of his first converts to Christ. This man had come to know Christ in and through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And then he sends greetings to several individuals whom he identifies as his fellow workers in the gospel ministry. In verse 6, he greets a woman named Mary who had worked hard for the believers in Rome. In verse 8, he notes that Urbanus is a fellow worker in Christ And in verse 12, he sends greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, who also were workers in the Lord. Then at the end of verse 12, he greets Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. The success of Paul's ministry depended upon the efforts of others. He was not a one-man show. 
was not a, a lone ranger in ministry. He needed other people. And that is why he acknowledged them individually and specifically. Is this true of you and me? Have you taken the time to acknowledge the people that God has used in your life? Those who have helped you, given you opportunities, prayed for you, encouraged you, supported you? Maybe you could take some time this season to write out a thank you note expressing your gratitude for that person or persons. Maybe you could write them an email or call them on the phone. Whatever you do, make sure you acknowledge them by name and be specific too. Tell them exactly why you are grateful for them or mention how they have helped you. It could be an old Sunday school teacher who led you to the Lord or a parent or guardian who taught you to be responsible. Or maybe it was a coach who encouraged you to work with others. Or perhaps it is a long-lost friend who was there for you when you needed it. Don't miss an opportunity to bless someone else, even as they have blessed you by acknowledging ways that God has used them in your life. In order to live more consciously aware of our need for other Christians, we must appreciate God's people. We must value their contribution to our success in life and in ministry. We also must acknowledge God's people. And so we must verbalize our gratitude for them individually and specifically. But there's one more way that we can do this. Lastly, we must accept God's people. We must accept God's people. In other words, we must view them through the lens of the gospel. This passage gives us a remarkable window into the diversity of the early church. The people on this list come from all kinds of different backgrounds. There are both Jews and Gentiles represented on this list. Aquila Mentioned in verse 3 was a Jew, according to Acts chapter 18, verse 2, as were Andronicus and Junius, whom Paul calls my kinsmen, in verse 7. Down in verse 11, another Jew named Herodian is identified as my kinsman. Several Gentile Christians are also mentioned here. Although it is impossible to be certain about their ethnic background, Perhaps it is instructive that Greek, Latin, and Roman names are represented on this list. There are also both men and women mentioned here. There are 17 men mentioned, which is not all that remarkable for a first century letter, but there are also seven women named, which was extremely unusual in that culture. Prisca, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and Julia are all mentioned by name. What a remarkable testimony to the New Testament's elevated perspective of women and their significant role in the ministry of the church. 
This list also mentions both slaves and those who were free. A few of the people named here were most likely free, but there are a number of slaves or ex-slaves mentioned as well. Because there was a tendency in the ancient world to give certain names to certain kinds of people, thus indicating their socioeconomic status, Ampliatus, mentioned in verse 8, was probably a slave, as was Urbanus, mentioned in verse 9. It is likely, too, that Tryphena and Tryphosa, verse 12, were or had been slaves as well. On top of this, there are well-known and relatively obscure people identified by Paul. In verse 13, Paul greets a man named Rufus. Interestingly, this same man is mentioned in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, as the son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ. This indicates that Simon likely became a believer in Jesus Christ as a result of this incident, and that his sons, Alexander and Rufus, became well-known individuals in the early church as a result. But Paul does not just greet the famous Christians. There are several individuals named here who we know nothing about. We do not know anything about Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, and Hermes, named in verse 14. And even in this, we learn a valuable lesson. Spurgeon says, quote, We know next to nothing about these good people. They were, like the most of us, commonplace individuals, and they loved the Lord. And therefore, Paul remembered their names. Do not let us think of the distinguished Christians exclusively so as to forget the rank and file of the Lord's army. Let us value all Christ's servants. It is better to be God's dog than the devil's darling. It is better to be the meanest Christian than to be the greatest sinner. If Christ is in them and they are in Christ, then let your hearts go out towards them. End of quote. Although we cannot be certain, it is likely that there are also rich people and poor people represented in this group. There are people of different ages, both young and old. There are church leaders and church members. This is a very diverse group of people. And yet, for all the diversity of the people mentioned in this text, Paul stresses their fundamental unity in the gospel. He does this by repeating his oft-used and theologically loaded words in Christ and in the Lord several times throughout this section. Did you notice this? Look Look at how pervasive this theme is. He mentions in verse 1 that Phoebe should be received in the Lord. He mentions in verse 3 that Prisca and Aquila are workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, Eponidas is the first convert in Christ. Andronicus and Junius, verse 7, were in Christ before Paul. Ampliatus, verse 8, is the beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, verse 9, is a worker in Christ. Apelles is approved in Christ. 
Verse 11, the household of Narcissus are in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa, verse 12, are workers in the Lord. Persis, verse 12, has worked hard in the Lord. And Rufus, verse 13, is a choice man in the Lord. In theological terms, what Paul does here is emphasize the doctrine known as union with Christ. This doctrine teaches that salvation is found in Christ and because of Christ. By by faith, we who believe are united to Christ in such a way that all that is true of him is now true of us. All that happened to him happened to us. And all that belongs to him now belongs to us. Even though we are sinners, deserving of God's judgment and wrath, we are accepted by God and forgiven of all of our sins because of what Christ has done for us. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we are accepted by God. But this doctrine also teaches that we we are united to Christ's people. We are connected by our common bond in Jesus Christ and therefore accept one another for his sake. Charles Swindoll tells of a time when he was teaching a midweek service at his church when all of a sudden the back doors blew open and two rough guys walked in. One wore a sleeveless shirt revealing a network of tattoos down one arm. The other wore a leather Harley jacket and a Nazi helmet under his arm. They walked heavily to the back seats and sat down with a loud thump. The guy with the sleeveless shirt never took off his sunglasses, and they both sat there with their arms folded. After the service, the crowd mingled and talked. The two men made a beeline for Swindoll. The guy with the helmet said, You swindle? Sure, that's me, Swindoll nervously said. You the guy on the radio? Yes, I'm probably the one you've heard. At that point, the man dropped his helmet and gave Swindoll a bone-crushing hug, lifting him straight off the ground. The man said to him, Chuck, don't ever quit. You told me about Jesus, and I want to thank you. I also want you to know, I love you, man. Even though these men had come from diverse backgrounds, they found a common love for each other in the gospel. In Christ, they were part of the same spiritual family and therefore they loved one another. This is what being in Christ is all about. It is the line of demarcation for Christians. This is our new boundary marker. We are no longer identified on the basis of social status, race, ethnicity, gender, or political affiliation. 
but are identified on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. What's most important is that we are in Christ and connected to his people, the church. And because we are in Christ, we accept and love one another. Paul writes at the end of this section, down in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is how Christians in Paul's day showed affection for one another. While we do things a little different in our culture, we still need to find ways to express Christ-like affection for each other. We can give each other holy hugs or extend holy handshakes. The important thing is that we are expressing love to one another as evidence that we accept each other for who we are in Christ. Although this is going to be woefully inadequate, certainly far below the standard set by the Apostle Paul, I want to close today by expressing my love and gratitude to the people of this church for for your contribution to my success in this capacity. I have more than 26 people to mention, but every one of you are important to me. I first want to thank Pastor Jim and Darcy Schultz, fellow laborers in Jesus Christ, for the opportunity you gave me to serve as a pastor here. I appreciate all of the elders and their wives, Dave and Mariana Stevenson, Dave and Alice Hendrickson, Bo and Barb Chernikoff, Jim and Tana Walker, for your encouragement and support along the way. And thanks to specific members here who have made our time out here so pleasant and sweet. Dave and Bev Abishon, thanks for your great questions and interest in theology. John and Sandy Forster, the choice servants in Christ, thank you so much for your help with the youth group and the love you've shown my family and me. We, we will greatly miss you guys. Ed and Beth Bossom, Thank you for your Phoebe-like hospitality, your friendship, and your love for the truth. Al and Norma Hall, I know they're not, they're, they're not in here right now, but thank you. I want to thank them for taking us crabbing and bringing us good food to eat. Glenn and Martha Hallam, beloved friends in the Lord. thank you for your concern for my family and me. We love your family so much and we're going to miss you. Lawrence Harvest, thanks for your many holy hugs. Willard and Grace Michael, 
Thank you, dear servants of Christ, for your hospitality, for allowing us to be your neighbors. We will miss you dearly. There are so many of you here, co-laborers in Christ. You should be commended for your service to this church and for your support of our ministry here. But let me especially mention a few more of you. Shirley Thrasher. Romans 16 was being written today. I'm quite confident that you would be on the list. Thank you for your love for Christ and all the ways you've ministered to my family. Derek and Jen Vrabel and family. I'm going to miss you guys very much. Thanks for your friendship. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your love. We're going to miss you guys. Grant and Rachel Walker, thanks for your support during our time here. Rachel, thank you for all the ways as church secretary you made up for my lack of organizational skills. Could not have done half of the, the children's ministry events that I did without your help. So thank you. Wayne and Paula Wilson, thanks for your care for our family. Paula, Thank you for the love you've shown to my children, Anna, Benjamin, Owen, and Grace. You're like another grandmother to my children, and I'm so grateful. Finally, Ron and Jocelyn. Thanks for all the meals that we shared together. We will miss our times of fellowship. Thank you all for the times you have expressed your appreciation for me and my ministry here, for how you have acknowledged me at various times with gifts and supports, for how you have accepted me in Christ. From day one, you have made me feel part of the family. May all of us here grow more consciously aware of our need for God's people, to do this better, may we appreciate God's people by valuing their contribution to our success in life and ministry. May we acknowledge God's people by verbalizing our gratitude for them individually and specifically. And may we accept God's people by viewing them through the lens of the gospel unconditionally. Let's pray together. Father, I love the people of this church. And I know that you love them even more than I do or ever could. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to pay our punishment on the cross, to rise again from the dead so we could have new life. We thank you for accepting us in Christ. Thank you for your spirit who binds us together in love. Thank you 
so much for the time that I've had with these dear people. Thank you for the opportunities they gave me. Thank you for the friendship they offered to me. Thank you for the love that they showed to me and my family. I am so very grateful to you and for them. I pray that you would richly bless them in the coming days. That you'd cause them to bear fruit for your glory. That they would carry out the work of the ministry. That they would proclaim the gospel. That they would make disciples on this island. I commit them now, Lord, to the the word of your grace. And I pray that that we would continue to keep in touch. Thank you for this time. Pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.